You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It's the most consequential reproductive rights case in 30 years, and the Supreme Court's conservatives suggested they're ready to roll back abortion rights and uphold Mississippi's ban on abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy. In an argument that lasted almost two hours, all six Republican-appointed justices indicated they would let states start banning abortion far earlier than the court's precedents now allow. Here's Justice Samuel Alito. The fetus has an interest in having a life, and that doesn't change, does it, from the point before viability to the point after viability? Liberal justices suggested a decision that gutted the precedents of Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey would undermine the court's legitimacy. Here's Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts. Joining me is Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. How would you characterize the questioning by the justices, the tone? Was it even-keeled, contentious, tense? There was a certain amount of contentiousness. Mostly it was very much in favor of Mississippi. The conservative justices all suggested they were ready to uphold the 15-week ban. Almost no questions from them suggesting any skepticism towards it. Justice Clarence Thomas asked right away how the court could uphold the law without overturning the court's precedence on abortion. Is there any way for the court to do that? There didn't seem to be a way offered by either side that satisfied the justices. Lawyers on both sides are casting this case as pretty much an all-or-nothing case. The abortion rights lawyers, Julie Rickleman, the Solicitor General, Elizabeth Prelogger, were both essentially saying, if you're going to uphold this law, you are essentially gutting Roe, and there's no middle ground standard that will be as workable as the current one that we have. 
Was the only question for the conservatives then whether to overrule Roe entirely or whether to stop at 15 weeks of viability? That sure seemed to be the case. So you had Chief Justice John Roberts, who was mostly talking about the 15-week ban aspect of the law. He wasn't talking about overruling Roe. And then you had justices like Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh, who were really pressing on the stare decisis issue, the idea that the court will respect its precedents. And then you had the most conservative justices who were pretty clear that overruling Roe was what they had in mind. So you had on one side Justice Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and Neil Gorsuch for overruling Roe. And then you had the liberals, Justices Sonia Sotomayor, Stephen Breyer, and Elena Kagan for keeping Roe and overruling this Mississippi law. And then you had the other three sort of in the middle or not really in the middle because all the conservatives seem to be ready to allow the Mississippi law. Yeah, not really in the middle. Exactly. They were ready to allow the Mississippi law. John Roberts was really only talking about the specific law in front of them, not about the broader question about overturning Roe v. Wade. And Kavanaugh and Barrett, almost all their questions were suggesting they were at least thinking very seriously about overturning Roe. They were both suggesting reasons why the court didn't need to respect the precedent of Roe v. Wade. While there might be good reasons that the court could overturn it and that the reasons that the court gave in Roe and then in Casey for keeping abortion rights intact might not be valid ones. So remind me what Barrett and Kavanaugh said about precedent in their confirmation hearings. Well, both of them said they would respect precedent. Uh, Both of them acknowledged Roe and Casey as precedents of the court, but they didn't say that either of them were settled law. They, they did not uh, treat them the way they treated something like Brown versus Board of Education, which they portrayed as a decision that would never come up to the court to be second-guessed. They said that because there was a chance that they would be asked to overturn Roe v. Wade, uh, they didn't want to comment on what they thought about that. Was any conservative justice agreeable to keeping the viability standard? No one seemed to like the viability standard, and John Roberts was certainly among them. He said that the viability standard put the U.S. uh, in league with North Korea and China as as two other countries that had that standard. Julie Rickleman, the lawyer representing the Jackson, Mississippi Clinic, shot back that that he was uh, incorrect in that assessment. But he said that 15 weeks seems like enough time for somebody to make a decision. He seemed very ready to jettison that standard. Barrett question the contention by the abortion right advocates that women would be forced into bearing the burden of parenthood if they couldn't have an abortion. Did she suggest adoption as a viable alternative? She did, and she returned to the subject a couple times. She talked about safe haven laws that she said were in place in all 50 states that let a woman who gives birth leave her baby in a, in a safe place to be adopted, and then she doesn't have to bear those burdens of parenthood. And what Justice Barrett was suggesting was that language in Roe and Casey that suggested that was a reason why the court needed to let a woman end the pregnancy uh, was not a valid reason. What was the tone of the liberal justices? Because Justice Sonia Sotomayor said something that seemed rather shocking. The theme among the liberal justices was that if the court overturns Roe, it will lose its legitimacy. And and Justice Sotomayor used the phrase, will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception? 
that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts. A couple of the justices, the liberal justices, mentioned the court's change in membership and the perception that the country would have that Roe was being overturned, not because anything had changed over the course of 50 years, just because uh, the court's membership had changed. I suppose the justices shouldn't be thinking about public opinion, but it is sort of shocking that they would seemingly take this turn at this point in our history where a majority of the public supports abortion. That's interesting, and it may you know, ultimately have an effect on exactly how this case is resolved. Depending on how you ask the question, if, if you ask folks about do they support a 15-week limit on abortion, uh, then there's more support for that sort of limit. So if the court could somehow limit its decision to just the Mississippi law, uh, perhaps it wouldn't have the public opinion issue that you just described. The problem for the court is that in the absence of using viability as a line, it's not at all clear, and certainly it's not clear that the court has the interest, uh, what the other line might be, what line might allow a 15-week ban but not allow a six-week ban. And that's why there seemed to be a good deal of momentum on the court for just going ahead, ripping off the Band-Aid and overturning Roe. And as you suggest, there could be a backlash there. So remind me, when the court took this case, was there talk about overturning Roe? There was, but not, not as much. So what happened was when Mississippi filed its appeal, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was still alive. The appeal did not explicitly ask the court to overturn Roe. After Justice Ginsburg died, Justice Barrett joined the court, the court took agreed to take up the case. And then when Mississippi filed its brief on the merits, that's when it directly said, hey, you should just go ahead and overturn Roe and Casey. So that's why the, the emphasis here has changed. And that's another factor that might matter when I talk about how this decision is perceived by the public. As we've talked about many times, the chief justice is in favor of incrementalism, moving slowly. What would be moving slowly in this case? Moving slowly would be if the court could somehow find a way to uphold this this law. And mind you, that would be a sweeping change because that is far earlier than the Supreme Court has ever said is okay to, to, to ban abortion. But if the court could find a way to uphold this law and just limit it to the facts of this case, that it's a 15-week ban in Mississippi right now, the only clinic there performs abortions only up to 16 weeks. So the, the narrow effect of this law on Mississippi is pretty small. The problem, of course, would be that uh, almost immediately they would be barraged with other appeals saying, well, then you should also allow our 12-week ban or our 8-week ban or our 6-week ban, and it's going to be very hard for the court to find a, a way to draw a line there. And that was something I think the Solicitor General talked about. Also, in the case of Mississippi, is there a trigger that would completely ban abortions? Mississippi is one of about 12 states that also has a law that would automatically ban virtually all abortions if the court explicitly overrules Roe v. Wade. And so that law would kick in. And there, there would probably be some litigation over some, some of those laws, uh, whether they actually apply. But there, there would probably be, beyond the, the 12 states, another maybe another 10 or so, according to abortion rights advocates, maybe even more than that, that would very significantly limit abortion rights and enact pre-viability bans. Did any of the liberal justices make an impassioned 
plea or was there passion on that side? It was mostly from Justice Sotomayor, as is typical. Uh, Justices Kagan and Breyer were, were more focused on issues of the court's legitimacy. Justice Breyer quoted from the Casey decision and its, its concerns about the impact on the perception of the court if it's overruling its watershed precedents. The absence of Justice Ginsburg was certainly felt today. She would have been one of those justices he would have expected to be uh, very passionate about what uh, seems like is about to happen. Justice Samuel Alito was pretty stark in what he was saying about getting rid of abortion. Yeah, Justice Alito uh, was pretty darn clear. One thing he pressed uh, Elizabeth Prelogger on was the idea that Plessy versus Ferguson, the 1896 ruling that said that state-sponsored racial segregation was was okay. He pressed her to, to concede that uh, that decision was, was so bad it should have been overturned immediately. Clearly in his head, he is imagining Roe v. Wade as, as being that sort of decision that was so bad that uh, it, it should be overturned just because of how bad it is. And she said that the court had never revoked a constitutional right it had extended. This would be the first time. Yeah, and that, that's an interesting way of casting this case, and that's part of the reason why abortion rights supporters are, are uh, so up, upset by it. But that didn't seem to be a, a distinction that uh, mattered to the, to the justices when they talked about the court overruling precedents. Uh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh listed a whole lot of precedents that the court had overturned, and he talked about things like Brown versus Board of Education and the Obergefell gay marriage decision as big rulings that overturned precedents and uh, su- suggesting that uh, overruling Roe would, would just be another case along those lines. After hearing the oral arguments, what's your best guess about how this will come out? For starters, it's very clear they're going to uphold the Mississippi law. The question is whether they will go further and overturn Roe. On that, it's hard to say for sure. Based on what we heard in the arguments, it sounds like there might well be five votes to do that, including Kavanaugh and Barrett. The question will be, when push comes to shove, if John Roberts wants to write a narrower opinion that doesn't go that far, will somebody like Brett Kavanaugh decide he's going to go along with the chief and save the bigger ruling for later? On that, it's really too hard to say. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Greg. That's Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... 
It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The best protection, I know you're tired of hearing me say this, the best protection against this new variant or any of the, of the variants out there, the ones we've been dealing with already, is getting fully vaccinated and getting a booster shot. President Biden has been consistent in his message about vaccines, but his vaccine mandates are facing problems in the courts. About 17 million health care workers are fighting the pandemic from the front lines. And the Biden administration has mandated that they must be vaccinated by January 4th. But more than half the states are involved in legal challenges to that mandate. And in the first victory for opponents of the mandate, a federal court in Missouri blocked the administration from enforcing it in 10 states. My guest is Robert Field, a professor of law and public health at Drexel University. It's the first victory for opponents of the vaccine mandate for health workers. So why did a federal court in Missouri block the Biden administration from enforcing the mandate? That mandate is issued through the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which runs Medicare and Medicaid. And the court felt that it overstepped its authority in requiring that hospitals that accept those programs impose a vaccine mandate on their workers. It felt that this was federal overreach, that it goes beyond what Congress authorized the agency to do. The court also went into some of the policy aspects which is not really appropriate for a legal review, and said it will cause people to avoid health care jobs and it will cost a large amount of money to administer. So now a federal judge in Florida declined to block the rule in a separate suit. So we're in a funny legal world in terms of the mandates of whack-a-mole, where different courts are whacking different legal moles as the cases come up. Only the Supreme Court is really in a position to speak definitively to this issue. Until they do, it's going to be different district courts, which have limited geographic scope, and appeals courts that have limited geographic scope. None of them has the final say until the Supreme Court speaks. So it's not unusual in a case like this with national litigation to see different opinions from different courts. So that means that, for example, healthcare workers in 10 states, according to this decision, right. don't have to abide by the mandate. But healthcare workers in other states do. For the time being, they don't have to abide by the mandate until there's been a final ruling in the case. It's a temporary injunction. So it's not as though it will never apply to them, 
But in terms of the Missouri ruling, it could be reversed after the court fully hears all the arguments and makes a definitive decision. This is a temporary injunction. And given the fast-moving and emergency nature of a lot of these laws, we're seeing a lot of courts issuing temporary injunctions, not waiting the weeks or months that it might take to have the case fully argued, to have the briefs written and the oral arguments made and and a full decision written, which is one of the reasons we're seeing so many different decisions, because courts are acting quickly to either strike down mandates or temporarily uphold them. In neither of those cases are we seeing fully fleshed out reasoned decisions, which should be the basis of precedent. So in your opinion, which judge is correct? Is it the judge in Florida who didn't block it or the judge in Missouri who did block it? Well, I can give you my opinion. Yes. Um, But whether um, the Supreme Court would agree with it, I I guess we'll find out at some point. I think the mandate for health care workers rests on pretty solid legal ground. It's tied to Medicare and Medicaid, uh, primarily to Medicare. And what it does is it adds a condition of participation. If a hospital or another care facility wants to be eligible to receive Medicare reimbursement, it has to meet various requirements. And there are hundreds of pages of regulations setting forth those requirements. So, for instance, it has to have properly licensed uh, staff. It has to be properly accredited. uh, It has to meet various quality control standards. Uh, Under the Affordable Care Act, it has to meet standards for reporting safety lapses, readmissions uh, after surgery, mortality, morbidity rates for certain procedures. Um, There are, as I said, pages and pages of requirements. This is adding to those requirements, but there's never been a question up to now about CMS's authority to issue them. Uh, What is a bit different is this is issued on an emergency basis. And while the courts are acting quickly to either issue or deny injunctions, CMS, as well as OSHA for the larger mandate, have acted very quickly uh, without the usual rulemaking process, which can take months or years to publish a proposed rule, solicit comments from interested parties, revisit the rule, publish it again, publish uh, a a preamble that explains uh, all of its thinking and analysis, uh, and then making it a, a final rule. So one of the distinctions here that a court could make is the speed with which um, CMS acted and the lack of the full fleshed out procedure. The judge in Missouri said that this is not really an emergency and it didn't call for their emergency powers and said, well, when will we stop treating COVID as emergency? I would say when thousands of people stop dying every day of the disease, it will no longer be an emergency. Uh, The court didn't find that very convincing. Um, So if you accept that this is an emergency, and I certainly believe COVID, especially with the new variants, is an emergency, then that would justify CMS's use of its emergency powers. Just looking down the road, if after trial this injunction is still in place and it's appealed, it would go to the Eighth Circuit, which has one active or senior status judge appointed by a Democratic president out of 14. The one in Florida would go to the 11th Circuit, which is also very conservative. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. you could end up with 
two conservative courts hearing this and possibly agreeing, would the Supreme Court still, you think, take a case? My guess, and it's a guess, is that they would because it's such an important issue that they would want to resolve it with finality. Typically, they would take a case when there's a split between the circuits. But when there's something this important where precedent is needed for this pandemic and possibly the next one, I would think that the Supreme Court would want to step in. With regard to Biden's mandate for large employers, we've already resolved that it's going to be the Sixth Circuit that's going to make the decision for all the circuits through the ping pong ball lottery. So in that case, the Supreme Court would not use a a split between the circuits to step in. But I think there as well, it would use its authority to define what the law is uh, so that officials uh, going forward have some sense of what they can and can't do. And there will probably be splits in the circuits at some point so that the Supreme Court will review the issue. Yeah, it's likely there will be. I, I guess the one issue that would be concerning in terms of the legal terrain is if the Supreme Court uses what's become known as a shadow docket. Rather than issuing a full decision, they issue a temporary order either striking down or upholding an injunction, and then wait months or years before actually considering the merits of the case. But I do think this is important enough, and guidance is so desperately needed that the court would step in. It seemed as if we were looking at, you know, light at the end of the tunnel, and so maybe these vaccine mandates weren't as important as they were six months, a year ago. But now that there's a new variant, does that add another dimension of urgency to this? Yeah, well, in theory it does, but it's too new to really know how effective the vaccines are. Um, So it will take uh, some time, at least a few weeks to have a sense of whether more vaccination will help. But clearly, the more people who are vaccinated, the less chance the virus has uh, to mutate and develop new strains. Uh, We first noticed this variant in South Africa. Africa has a very low vaccination rate, so it's not surprising that that would be a wonderful incubator for new vaccine strains. Um, I think that the idea that new variants can pop up at any time without warning should give a greater sense of urgency to getting our vaccine rates up as high as possible, possibly high enough to achieve herd immunity where the virus can't get a toehold in the population. Now, turning to the Sixth Circuit, which, as you said, has all the consolidated cases on the mandate for large employers. Several states with Republican attorneys general, the Republican National Committee, various companies and other groups have asked that court to have an on-bank review before a three-judge panel. Why would they want that? Is that ever done? It's done when you have a decision by one judge or or by a panel to have every judge on that circuit court uh, decide. I don't know what their reasoning is. My guess is that if the entire court were to hear the case and rule against the mandate, they'd be in a stronger position when it comes to the Supreme Court. Because the Biden administration has filed papers saying that they should not what they would be doing is bypassing the three-judge panel and going right to the full circuit, and that's out of the normal procedure. So the Biden administration is 
arguing against that. Is the Biden administration also just looking for time? Well, they may be. Um, also, it's a court that's heavily dominated by Republican appointees. So there's a greater chance of getting some Democrats on the three-judge panel uh, than there is of getting a Democratic majority on the full um, bank panel. They've received petitions to transfer the case to other circuits. Is there any reason why a circuit would say, no, let this other circuit take this over? We can't handle it. Asking the Sixth Circuit to send it to another circuit, it seems to me like a fool's errand. There's a strategy often used in litigation of throwing as many arguments as you can against the wall and seeing what would stick. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's a fairly minimal cost to, to throwing those arguments out. My guess is that they don't really expect to succeed in that. I think the Sixth Circuit, my guess is the judges are very happy to have the case and to leave their imprint in this area of the law. So let's turn to yet another lawsuit over vaccine mandates. And there are certainly plenty of them to discuss. So New York City's COVID vaccine mandate, there's a religious challenge by 15 public school teachers and administrators. So what did the arbitrator rule here? So the ruling was that if you're going to claim a religious exemption, it has to be through a recognized religion. And if the leader or top clergy in that religion have come up in favor of vaccines, that your objection could not be sincere and therefore not legitimate. That seems like a very radical approach. Well, the sincerity of a a religious objection is is important uh, because we don't want to allow sham, contrived religious beliefs uh, to counteract public policy. But it's very difficult to draw that line. Uh, When is someone genuinely expressing a sincerely, deeply held religious belief, and when are they just trying to do an end run uh, around a vaccine mandate? That would be one way of doing it, saying you can't just make up your religion on the spot. The Supreme Court, the, the conservative majority there, seems more sympathetic to the argument that you can make it up on the spot. The Second Circuit in the New York City case seemed more sympathetic to that argument that you can't challenge someone's belief because another member of their religion doesn't accept it. Even a leader of their religion doesn't accept it. You have to take each person on their own. But there was one employee who was identified as Roman Catholic that was granted an exemption despite the fact that the Pope has been in support of vaccinations. Well, I think that gets to the argument that um, you can't base the sincerity of your belief on what other members of the religion believe. Um, Now, the divine authority of the Pope, uh, the belief in the divine authority of the Pope is stronger uh, than in the respect given to the leaders of many other religions. But it would come under that reasoning that your interpretation of your religion is what controls, not what a member of the clergy, a leader of the clergy, or fellow members of the religion believe. So the Second Circuit's concerns were with First Amendment issues. Yeah, so that would be a matter of freedom of religion. That's been a thorny issue um, all along. The Supreme Court held, that case was 1944, uh, held that religious exemptions to compelling public policy need not be granted. And so religious exemptions to vaccine mandates are not constitutionally required. 
So I don't really understand what the precedent is here. It's possible the Supreme Court will get this case and then decide to um, overrule that precedent. But with regard to school mandates, religious exemptions are not required, and there are now five states uh, that don't permit them. School children have to be vaccinated uh, to attend school. Um, West Virginia, Mississippi, California, Maine, New York, and Connecticut have repealed them. And in another case involving a religious exemption, Justice Stephen Breyer turned away a request from eight Mass General Brigham workers for a religious exemption from the Massachusetts hospital system's requirement that they be vaccinated. Breyer rejected that without requesting a response from the hospital or referring the matter to the full court. It's not unusual. Um, There are cases where a justice would... um, request a fuller examination, but this is an emergency order they're asking for. And, you know, the way the Supreme Court works is each justice is assigned a geographic territory to handle emergency requests. And they have a fair amount of latitude. Uh, The plaintiffs could appeal to the full court to review what he has done, but it's not unusual for, for the justice in charge of a region uh, to either accept or deny a request for an emergency order uh, on their own. And so, so far, the justices haven't second-guessed vaccine requirements. But there were two two cases before the court, Maine and New York? Right. So in the Maine case, they have not issued a final decision. Uh, it stays in effect pending the, the full litigation, and it is possible that the conservative justices will decide that a religious exemption is required, um, but they did not. Um, I'm trying to remember. I think the, the vote was six to three. They did not uh, require that um, it be put on hold pending the full consideration of the lawsuit. I guess you can't blame people for being confused about these vaccine mandates because there seem to be different interpretations of the different mandates. I think part of the confusion is that we're seeing a scattershot of cases across the country. Yeah. And we're seeing different decisions, some based on the law and some based on politics. And so there's um, and we're seeing new terrain. Uh, with with these mandates. We've spent well over 100 years um, hashing out school mandates, and that law seemed to be pretty settled. But broader mandates for broader swaths of the population, that's new. Uh, And it does raise greater sensitivities. And um, so it's not surprising we have inconsistent decisions. I, I should add, though, that the school mandates as a political and ideological uh, matter are not resolved. Uh, There's still a very strong anti-vax movement. There are still a lot of parents who try to get whatever exemptions they can, um, who try to delay the vaccines, uh, who homeschool their children so they won't uh, have to comply with the public uh, school attendance rules. Uh, So that is still a controversial issue. And of course, we have the uh, anti-vax misinformation, uh, for instance, that autism uh, is caused by various vaccines or other kinds of neurological injury uh, for which there really is no evidence. 
So if there's no religious exemption from vaccine mandates, what exemption from vaccine mandates is there? There will always be an exemption for medical reasons. Okay. And the basic Supreme Court case that upheld mandates dates from 1905, uh, a smallpox vaccine mandate um, in Massachusetts in response to an epidemic. Uh, the court said that uh, you cannot impose a mandate if it's likely to cause medical harm to the person. So that's been incorporated into every mandate law since. Uh, but it did not say any other uh, kind of exemption was required. Um, for the COVID vaccines, there's a very narrow um, range of conditions that could make you vulnerable. Uh, people who've had one shot and reacted anaphylactically or had another kind of allergic reaction, um, certain kinds of autoimmune conditions. So if you have one of those, then you can, uh, it's constitutionally required that you're granted an exemption, but that's not going to cover a lot of people. Thanks so much for being on the show. That's Robert Field, a professor of law and public health at Drexel University. Jacob Chansley, known as the QAnon shaman, is appealing his sentence of more than three years for his role in the January 6th Capitol riot. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter David Yaffe Bellany. Tell us about the charges against him and what happened. So the charges against Jacob Chansley are similar to the charges that have been filed against many of the rioters. He entered the building in an unauthorized way. He obstructed an official proceeding. He pleaded guilty to that. The big difference between him and some of the other rioters is just this sort of notoriety that he managed to establish in the hours after the riot, partly because he showed up shirtless, tattooed with this horned headdress as he walked into the Senate chamber. So in some ways, he's not a particularly notable January 6th defendant, but he has this kind of symbolic importance that was established very early on. So he was sentenced to 41 months. The sentencing earlier month, he got 41 months, which is the joint longest sentence that um, a rioter has gotten so far. I mean, not many of them have been sentenced, but that's currently the sort of top tier of sentence that we've seen so far. He gave a very long, rambling and unusual address to the judge in that case in which he expressed remorse and talked about his admiration for Mahatma Gandhi and other historical figures. Um, It was very much in keeping with the sort of strange public persona that he's cultivated over the past year. And that seems like it was going to be the end of it. The judge said what you did here was horrific. And also the prosecutor characterized that note that he left for Vice President Pence as a threat. So, I mean, it wasn't just him running through the Capitol. Yes. I mean, he hasn't been accused of violence, which is a major difference between the charges that he's facing and what some of the more serious riot cases involve. But yes, he left a note on the dais that Mike Pence had just deserted that read, it's only a matter of time. Justice is coming. His lawyer argued that that wasn't actually a threat. The prosecutors argued that it was a violent threat to Pence that was clear because of the context of what was going on. So there's been a lot of arguments back and forth about that. But yeah, that was one of the kind of key accusations against him. So is he now trying to take back the guilty plea? So it's not entirely clear what's happening right now. He's been represented since the early days post-riot by a guy named Albert Watkins, a defense attorney who's been very kind of outspoken in his sort of endorsement of Jacob Chansley and then arguing that he's not actually a bad person, that he's a peace lover, that sort of thing. 
But Watkins was essentially fired as Chansley's lawyer and replaced by a guy named John Pierce, who's uh, representing a lot of other capital rioters in this kind of sprawling investigation. And earlier today, Pierce filed a, a notice of appeal saying that Chansley is going to you know, challenge the sentence at the appeals court level in, in Washington. We haven't seen the kind of full text yet of what Chansley's saying, what his argument's going to be. One potential option would be to argue that he was inadequately counseled by Watkins, his original lawyer. So that's something that we're anticipating kind of looking out for as more filings hit the docket in this case. That 41 months, that was less than the 51 months that the prosecutors had requested, even though it was one of the stiffest handed out so far. That's right. And that's partly because I think Chansley gave a very kind of authentic address to the court. You know, he showed that he was remorseful, and I think that resonated with the judge as he handed down the sentence. It seems like it's a long stretch to think that he's going to be able to challenge his sentence when the sentence was in the guidelines, was in the framework, was less than what the prosecutors wanted, and he was fully represented by a lawyer. So it just seems like an uphill battle and kind of strange. It is kind of strange. It's an enormous long shot. I think that every expert who's following this pretty much agrees that it's very unlikely that he'll, he'll end up with a sentence less than the one he's already received. How many other capital rioters have been charged? How many have been sentenced? About 600 have been have been charged so far. It's a huge investigation. We're still seeing, you know, more arrests every few days. The manhunt is very much continuing. In terms of sentences, I mean, we've had a, maybe a couple dozen so far, roughly. The vast majority haven't involved jail time. Rioters have been mostly, you know, sentenced to time served and released or given probationary sentences, that sort of thing. So we've only had a kind of small number that have carried serious jail time. But that's also partly because many of, of the defendants facing the most serious accusations just haven't been sentenced yet. I mean, some of them aren't pleading guilty, like in the big kind of conspiracy cases that are set to go to trial uh, next year. And in some instances, you know, it's just, you know, a defendant who was accused of something relatively minor who's been sentenced, and it sort of makes sense that, that the jail term hasn't been that long. So I'm not sure if you know this or if anyone knows this. So the FBI, they're, they're looking for the people who participated in the riot itself. We're hearing a lot from the January 6th committee about organizers and what might have happened behind the scenes. Is the FBI investigating that as well? The truth is we don't really know since obviously those sorts of investigations are totally cloaked in secrecy. There were kind of early rumblings in the sort of direct aftermath of the riot about the FBI looking at people who'd organized it. I mean, obviously there was talk even of Trump being indicted for inciting the riot. That hasn't happened. There hasn't really been any public indication that that's going to happen. And so it certainly seems as if the agency's priority at the moment is simply arresting the people who were there on the grounds who breached the building, some of whom were also involved in planning. And these big conspiracy cases involve people who were, who were helping to plan the riot. But we haven't yet seen the Justice Department go after those sort of big name associates of Trump, the types of people who are being subpoenaed by the Congressional Committee. Thanks, David. That's Bloomberg legal reporter David Yaffe Bellany. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.
I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+.